Seeing the glory of Jesus that will finally completely purify us and, and uh, we'll, we will enter into glory. And uh, so today, just um, as we're opening the word together and we're seeing Jesus, think about the difference that this Jesus can make in your life as you see him in his glory, in his righteousness, and in his victory. Let's uh, begin then verse 11 of chapter 19. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses." From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God. To eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who was in its presence who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. And these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Let's bow before God as we open his word. And now, Lord Jesus, as we've heard this revelation that you've given to us, your church, we ask again that you would give us by your spirit the ability to understand the things that you've told us. And above all, Lord Jesus, we ask that you would help us to see you in your glory, in your victory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever wondered why the greatest heroes of history... Um, tend to be warriors. Uh, When Joanne and I were in England uh, two years ago now, and uh, in England and then a little time in France, uh, if you you go through the cities of Europe, uh, you'll notice that the the poets and the politicians are acknowledged with little signs and plaques, maybe a sculpture uh, here or there, but the towering statues in city squares are reserved for warriors, usually on a horse. and the, the, the question that we maybe would come to mind is, well, why do we give so much attention to, adulation to, conquering warriors? Why not other significant things? I was just thinking this morning, why not, why not a statue for uh, the man who came up with indoor plumbing? That it seems to me to be a giant leap for mankind. Uh, why not electricians? Uh, why not um, auto mechanics? Uh, there's all sorts of things that if you, if you just take them out of your life, it would be a, it would be a, a severe loss. Uh, why do we, do we elevate generals and admirals 
And maybe the answer is because in moments of clarity, we recognize that there really is evil in this world and and only warriors stand between us and the wretched tyranny of despots. Now, what what is true in the world is infinitely more true in the spiritual realm. That um, as we're reading the book of Revelation, I I think we need to recognize, though the the genre is a bit esoteric, we're not familiar with it, this is an intensely practical book. It reveals the reality, the spiritual reality in which you live every day. The images of the dragon and the beast of the sea and the earth and the harlot of Babylon, they're meant to impress upon you in vivid colors the reality of the devil, the reality of swarming legions of evil that he unleashes on this world every day through deception, through coercion, and death. Uh, Jesus is telling us about the reality of the devil's war against the church. We see it again in this text that the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the one sitting on the horse, Jesus, and against those who follow him, the church. If you are a Christian, the devil really does hate you. He really does desire to destroy you. That's reality. That's pretty practical reality. We have brothers and sisters around the world today who experience the oppression and the, the, the hatred of the devil in very tangible ways. They're being put to death. They're being imprisoned. Their homes are being confiscated. They're losing their jobs. Today, it's happening. Because what Jesus is talking about here in this book is the way things actually are in the world. Now, in the context then of the reality of evil in the world in which you and I live, our text this morning is meant to thrill us with a clear view of Jesus, our great warrior king. Jesus wants us to know that he has destroyed the devil, but but even though the devil is allowed now under the sovereign uh, reign and control of God to continue to do work, his time is short. And very soon, Jesus Christ will come and make a complete final end to the devil and all those who follow him. And Jesus is telling us this because we will suffer. But as we suffer the devil's attacks, as we endure the beast's persecuting power, as we see uh, other professing Christians apostatize, being uh, led astray by the harlot's prowess, and it's going to happen, it's already happening. And as we see those things happening, Jesus wants us to understand that as we follow him, we are more than conquerors. And that no matter how the devil might rage, and he does and will, his doom is sure. And so this morning, Jesus wants us to have that courage and comfort of seeing him, our victorious Lord and King. In, this, in our text this morning, uh, it really breaks into two easily um, separated parts. First, um, 11 through 16, we have the conqueror, and then 17 through 21, we have the conquest. 
And that's how we'll break down the message this morning. First, then the conqueror. John says, then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. And John is not just uh, a fan of horses. Uh, John is uh, telling us something that the New Testament readers would have quickly identified, that a white horse with a rider is a symbol of victory. Uh, the, the, the white horse, the Andalusian horses of Spain were very um, popular for this. They're beautiful horses, uh, known for their speed, strength, uh, and, uh, and conquerors would often ride, either ride uh, a horse in the victory parade, or they would be uh, riding in a chariot with four white horses uh, pulling the chariot in the victory parade. Uh, conquests were acknowledged and, and so when we see a white horse with a rider, John wants us to see Jesus the victor. Notice Jesus does not judge come in this scene in order to uh, gain the victory. He's already gained the victory. He's already, he's, he appears on the scene as the conqueror. A military strategist agreed that the best generals do not fight a battle in order to gain the victory, but simply to secure it. In other words, through strategic planning and skillful position of troops and armament, the outcome is already determined. All that's left to do is to uh, engage the enemy and complete what's already been won. Those are the best generals. Well, Jesus is the best general. And in this battle that we have here in Revelation 19, Jesus doesn't engage hoping for a good outcome. He is there having already conquered and now completing what he's won as he engages with the principalities and powers of darkness. And Jesus does this in righteousness. We can't miss that term. It's so important. In righteousness, he judges and makes war. Uh, the war that we have taking place in Revelation 19 is not just mortal combat, it is primarily moral combat. It's an aggressive act of divine aggression. It is a hurricane of holiness. This is a tsunami of consuming fire as Jesus, in all of his glory and righteousness, engages now once and for all the devil and his, his armies. And so uh, his fitness to engage in this righteous war is, is revealed here. Jesus is called faithful and true. He is perfect in his person, obedient in every way, even to death on the cross. He is true. He's the definition of truth in all of his words and acts. Jesus acts perfectly in accord with the Father's will and perfectly in accord with what is righteous and good. And so Jesus is engaged in the true jihad, the true holy war against everything that's false, everything that's a lie, everything that's untrue and evil. And he knows what is untrue and evil because his eyes are like flaming fire. He sees everything perfectly. The writer of Hebrews reminds us that nothing is hidden from the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Nothing is hidden. And not only does Jesus see all things, but he sees all things exactly as they really are morally. And he has the authority to carry out this judgment. On his head are many diadems. A, a diadem is, a, is one type of crown that signifies uh, the highest ruling power. Jesus has many diadems. All authority on heaven, in heaven and earth, has been given to me. All authority, all power. 
He is the rightful executor of God's decrees of judgment. And there is a mystery about him. It's interesting, it says he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Um, I think the best understanding of this is that in uh, ancient times, particularly Old Testament times, to know someone's name was to acquire some leverage uh, with him. So when Jacob is fighting with the angel of the Lord, he says, tell me your name. To gain a name, it gives you some leverage, some control. Well, well Jesus has many names, but there are, there's truths about Jesus that no one knows but himself. You'll never get leverage over the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is a sovereign God. But notice, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Now, scholars uh, talk about, is this, is this his own blood that he shed on the cross? Is this the blood of his enemies? I don't think we need to differentiate. Uh, Jesus accomplished victory over his enemies by dying on the cross. But I do think in this context, we're meant specifically to see his victory over his enemies. I'd like you to turn in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 63. Because I think this is a direct reference to Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah chapter 63. As Isaiah looks into the future and and tells of a coming warrior king and asks two questions. Who are you and why is your apparel red? Isaiah chapter 63. This is talking about Jesus. Verse 1. Who is this who comes from Edom? In crimsoned garments from Basra, who is he who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength? It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone. And from the peoples, no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. Now, that does not sound to most people like Christian language. And yet, Isaiah, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is telling us about Jesus, and in chapter uh, in 19, we have that exact same image. In fact, in verse 15, if you notice, he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Jesus will crush his enemies, that's the point. He will, he will take their life immediately, overwhelmingly, completely. And he will do it by his own power. When he says, I was alone, no one was with me, it's by his power alone that Jesus accomplishes this judgment of God. And so we see Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords engaged in this righteous battle against all that is evil. And there's also an army with him. Verse 14, the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Uh, One of the things I hope you've noticed in the book of Revelation is that Jesus is never alone. Though he carries out his victory by his own power, there are always people with him who enter into that victory with him. And so if you look through the book of Revelation, I just did a, a, a very quick 
scan. If you remember back in chapter 1, Jesus is there in all of his glory, and he's standing in the midst of the lampstands. The lampstands are the church. Jesus reminding his church, I am there with you in your midst. In Revelation chapter 7, John sees a, a host of people who've, quote, washed their robes and made them white, and they're with Jesus. Verse 15, they, they are before the throne of God. They serve him day and night. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Jesus shelters his people. In chapter 14, uh, John sees the lamb on Mount Zion. And once again, there are 144,000 who had his name written on their foreheads. In chapter 17, we're told that the lamb will conquer the beast, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and, quote, those with him are called and chosen and faithful. You see, Jesus, as he gives this revelation to his church, is not just saying, look at me. He's saying, look at me with you. That the Jesus who reigns in heaven is a Jesus who insists on being with his bride, being with his people. He's not, he's not a solitary figure. It is Jesus and his church, Jesus and his, his children, Jesus and his bride, over and over and over. There are always those with him, beautiful words, those with him. And those who are with him are made like him. The, the army following Jesus, they're also riding white horses. They are victors like Jesus is. They are also wearing white clothes like he does. The only difference being their clothes are not spattered with blood. Why not? Well, for two reasons, I think. First, because they conquered not by shedding their blood. Verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 11 says, they conquered by the blood of the Lamb. They conquered by Jesus' blood. But secondly, uh, it's because this army of heaven, uh, they are not there to win the battle, they are there to observe the conquest of Jesus and to follow him in his victory. And so Jesus has this, this host of people who are with him. That's what I love about Romans chapter 1, verse 6, where Paul says to the, the Christians, to those called to belong to Jesus. Called to belong to Jesus. There is no better uh, tag that can be attached to you and your life than that. Called to belong to Jesus, this Jesus, this conquering king. And so we find first then the, the conqueror with his, who he is and, and the army that follows him, and then we come to the conquest. Uh, Revelation 19, if we had taken the time to read the whole chapter, you would have noticed... Uh, probably immediately, there are two suppers in Revelation 19. In, in chapter, uh, verses 8 and 9, we have the angel welcoming and, and pronouncing a blessing on those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And we talked the last time about the glory of being at that wedding banquet where all the goodness of God flows in all of its fullness and glory to, to you and to me. The wedding feast of the Lamb. And now we have, in verse 17, another banquet, another supper. Come gather for the great supper of God. And in stark contrast, 
to the, the beauty of the wedding supper of the Lamb, we have this grotesque feast of divine wrath. Uh, the birds of heaven are invited to this banquet. And the table is the battlefield, and the, the fair is the flesh, the dead bodies of those whom the king has conquered and destroyed. So that's what Revelation 19 is about. Uh, the angel invites the birds to come and feed on the dead bodies of people. Now, <clears throat> queasy scholars who are uncomfortable with the idea of an avenging God uh, like to point out that this is just a symbol. It's just a symbol. And they're right. It is just a symbol. The question that has to be asked is, a symbol of what? A symbol of what? It's not a symbol of anything pleasant. Uh, wh whatever horror you might feel um, from this scene and these words, it's, it's just a faint image of the reality and the horror that will be experienced by the enemies of Christ. It's just a symbolic picture trying to give us a vague outline of the utter destruction and total defeat and eternal loss for all those who oppose Christ. And John wants us to see, Jesus wants us to see a couple things here. First, notice how quickly and effortlessly the triumph is achieved. There is no story here of a long drawn out battle where the, the, you know, the, 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 this uh, group of men came and flanked uh, to the right, and, and then there was a push made up the middle, and, the, and then it looked like it was just about over, and yet then came none, none of that. You see, the King of kings and Lord of lords has a sharp sword that comes from his mouth. That's what we're told. His name is the Word of God. And the same Jesus who spoke and said, let there be light, and there was light, says, let there be death, let there be destruction, let there be judgment. And it's done. In one moment, you have the kings of the earth gathering their armies, and the beasts is there, are there, and the false prophet. In a moment, they're standing to make war against the king, to make war against his people. And in the, in the next moment, they're all dead. And the, and the beast and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire alive in a moment as Luther captured one little word shall fell him that's the might that's the glory of King Jesus as he carries out his victory but notice secondly that this victory does not just involve the false prophet and the beast the servants of the devil who deceived so many led so many to worship the beast but it includes all those who participated in the work of the devil, right? The rest, all those who followed the beast, all those who had the mark of the beast, all those who submitted to the principles of the beast, those who participated in the sexual immorality of the harlot, those who believed the deception of the false prophet, all the rest, everyone who was not in Jesus Christ is here destroyed. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, whoever is not with me is against me. And, and this is the end of everyone who is not with Jesus. 
Verse 21, the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Have you ever um, looked at a group photo uh, in which you were, um, you were there somewhere? Maybe it's a high school photo and, and class picture, and you're years now down, and, you're, and you, uh, someone shows you, remember this, and you look. What's the first face you look for in the class photo? You look for yours. How goofy did I look? How good did I look? Where am I in the picture? Um, where are you in this picture? Because you're in this picture. Everyone is in this picture. Not a single person is left out of it. And as you try to find yourself in this picture, remember there's only two possible places for you to be. You, you will either be in the picture following Jesus Christ, riding a white horse in victory, clothed in white linen, made pure by Christ, on your way to the wedding supper of the Lamb and, and to eternal bliss in a new heaven and earth. You'll be there, or you will be on the battlefield, destroyed by the wrath of God and left for the birds of prey. Now, I want to... Just let that settle on you and ask yourself, which will it be for me? But I want to address our contemporary context. There really should be a third point here, contemporary context. Because this is a hard message for people in our age, our our cultural context to hear. We live, brothers and sisters, in a relativistic, pluralistic age, which means that It's hard for us to really imagine that the moral universe could be this drastically binary. That you're either with Jesus or destroyed. Seems vastly too simplistic. We believe in options, even moral options. Our society has taken the, the rainbow as their sign. And I mean by this the entire society. Many colors, many options, all free, all open, all good, as, as long as it serves your interests. You see, universal moral codes that have been adhered to and acknowledged for centuries are thrown into the trash heap of history because they're enemies of human freedom and authentic self-expression. Only you can decide what is right for you. That is the only inflexible moral law of our culture. And so people make their choices, many choices, in the conviction that this is not only acceptable, but it is right and good. And in such a pluralistic society, Nothing is more offensive than a story like this. A story in which Jesus Christ comes to destroy and kill all the people who lived their life in keeping with their authentic self just because it was contrary to God's law. 
Dennis Johnson says, such a presentation of a divine warrior full of wrath and vengeance against those who disregard his authority is offensive to man today. Scripture, however, paints a realistic picture of the moral structure of the universe. In other words, no matter how, moral, how uh, relativistic, morally speaking, our society might become, there is a moral structure to the universe. And it is fixed according to the holy character of God who created it. And it does not bend. It is perfectly immutable and inevitable and there are no hacks. There's no workarounds. And all of the relativistic nonsense of our contemporary culture is going to come to a crashing halt on the day of judgment as people are faced with the immutable reality of an unbending moral law upheld by a perfectly holy God. You see, friends, because that is true, because God is who He is, and because He has ordered His creation according to His purpose and His character, Judgment Day is not simply something that will happen. Judgment Day is something that must happen. It must happen happen. The irrevocable moral structure of this God-created universe demands it. Pay attention to that as you live and walk and breathe this relativistic air. Pay attention to the, the inflexible moral reality of God. Because you see, it is that that also makes the gospel so beautiful. The glory of God is revealed here in his, in his righteous judgment against all that is evil. But in the Gospels, the glory of God is also revealed in the fact that God, in all of his moral perfection, sent his own son, whom he dearly loved, to stand between you, the sinner, the offender, and the destruction that you absolutely deserved before the law of God. That, that God in heaven is not simply there pressing down the, the, the irrefutable weight of his holiness to crush sinners, but that God has intervened in human history in the person of his son to be crushed in the place of sinners. You see, it's exactly the law that will break your knees at the love and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. How could you still be proud? How could you possibly be proud if the Son of God loved you so much that He came to stand in your place and to suffer the wrath that you deserved so that the righteous character of God is preserved and you, the sinner and rebel, are rescued. You see, this is, this, is the, this is what the cross is about. Jesus went to the cross bearing our shame to suffer the irrevocable moral law of God. But through his atoning death and, through, and his resurrection, as C.S. Lewis says, a a whole, a, a way has been opened through the pitiless wall of death. 
And Jesus, our champion, leads us through. That's the gospel. Now, what should that do to you? What would be the evidence that you understand this? Let me just give you quickly three things. Many more could be added. One would be humility. How can we be proud? How can we stand for our rights, insist on our way, when Jesus Christ, the King of glory, came to suffer the destruction of justice, to allow his body to be ripped apart on a cross, left for the birds in that sense, and his soul to be ravaged by justice as he bore our sin. When I survey the wondrous cross in which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Let, let the gospel just humble you. No matter what wrongs have been committed against you, it, it, they don't even touch the wrongs that you've committed against God, and, and, and yet you've been loved and cared for, provided for, saved. It should give us courage as we live in this world. Yes, the world's a mess. It's an unbelievable mess. Yes, the devil is at work, seems to be growing more strong every day. Evil abounds, absolutely true. But just for a little while, and the king reigns over all of it, and the victor is coming again, and one day soon we're going to see everything that is evil destroyed. It's not very far away. We're going we're gonna to see righteousness established in a new heaven and earth. The knowledge of the Lord will be over the earth as water covers the sea. We don't need to be afraid, friends. Jesus, he's got this. We don't need to be afraid. He's king. King of kings, Lord of lords. And if we're catching this, we'll not only have humility and courage, but love. You see, if, if Jesus came to rescue me in this way, to join my human condition, bear my sin, suffer my death, endure the wrath I deserve in order to bring me into his glory and his victory, then shouldn't I love him? Shouldn't I love him more than anything? Wouldn't I want to live for him? Wouldn't that transform my life that I belong to Jesus now? He's my Lord. He's my King. And I love him. We're the whole realm of nature mind. That we're a present far, far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul and my life and my all. And friend, the, the evidence that we get this is then it'll be you on your knees before the Lord receiving, thanking, loving Jesus. Receiving his victory in your place. Having the courage to take a stand for his cause, but more than anything, loving Jesus Christ, your conqueror, your king, your Lord, until he comes again. Amen. Oh God in heaven, I pray that you would not let us miss these, these eternal things, these awesome things. We are, Lord, people slow to understand, and I, I beg that you would help us now to take what we've seen of Jesus and to apply that to our life, that we would confess our pride and our fear. And Lord, seeing Jesus and knowing that we belong to him and with our eyes fixed on his great victory, we would live in this world praising his name unashamedly, 
praising the name of the Lord our God, Lord of lords, King of kings, until he come again. May you grant it in Jesus' name. Amen.